This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Hi, this is Julie Jessen, CEO of Gowan Company. We're a family-owned company operating all over the world, including Canada. On behalf of Gowan Canada and the Jessen family, we wish you a very safe and happy holiday season. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dylan Shirley, and I'll be your host for this week's episode. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jocelyn Smith. She's a research scientist specializing in field crop pest management at the Ridgetown campus, a part of the University of Guelph. Dr. Smith, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Dylan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about uh, something on the East Coast that has kind of come up uh, in the last couple of years, and that's a potential issue with European corn borer and some BT resistance that has popped up in Nova Scotia. But before we get into all that, I just want to lay down the groundwork for what we're actually talking about. So first, let's talk about the pests in, involved here, and that's European corn borer. Um, what is the Euro- European corn borer, and what's its history in the Ontario and Maritimes corn growing regions? Okay. Yeah, so European corn borer, as the name implies, is not a native pest to North America, but it did arrive here in the early 1900s. And um, uh, I think one of the very first detections was actually in St. Thomas, Ontario, in a broom corn factory. And so it, you know, came from Europe somehow over this way, and it's definitely spread throughout almost any region of North America where we grow corn um, since then, since the early 1900s. And so it's a a lepidopteran pest. So the adult is a moth, right? It's a small beige colored moth. And the immature stage is a larva or a caterpillar. And it's that immature stage that causes a lot of injury to corn. And it historically was a, a really significant corn pest in North America. Once it became established here, it it became so widespread. Um, also, as the name implies, it's a borer. So the moth lays her eggs on the corn plant, and when they hatch, the little larvae bore their way into the midrib of the leaves, and then eventually into the stalks. And they they just tunnel their way through through their development and feed on the the, the stalk tissue, the interior, and they they create holes in the stalks and. And so obviously you have disruption of the physiology of the plant and that can result in yield loss, but they also can um, result in more stalk rots and ear rot problems because they create these entry holes from other fungal pathogens to get into the plant. So, so you know, historically they say that uh, before the invention of BT corn, which we're gonna talk about, um, European corn borer costs North American corn growers about a billion dollars a year to manage. So it was a really serious pest in the past. Yeah. Wow. No kidding. That sounds incredibly, uh, a, you know, a pain for corn growers back then. And also it's interesting that you mentioned that, like, it's not also just the insect causing the damage, but the introduction of pathogens and other things that might infect the plants as well. Mm-hmm. So you I uh, jumped ahead a little bit and you you mentioned the fantastic invention of BT corn. So uh, could you describe or kind of go through the history of BT corn in Canada and just kind of 
when it came around and what it actually does to protect uh, the corn plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it it was um, developed in the 90s in uh, all of North America, both Canada and the US basically started growing it around the same time, which was 1996, 1997 in that time period. Um, It was originally brought to the market um, targeting European corn borer. And so it's since then we've applied it to other insect pests in corn. Um, But originally uh, this, it basically, these corn plants express um, proteins that are made from a naturally occurring soil bacterium called Bacillus thuringiensis. That's where the BT comes from. And um, these proteins, um, if an insect ingest the bacteria, these proteins basically bind to the lining of their midgut in their their stomach and creates all kinds of pores in their stomach and their stomach contents leak out into their body cavity and they die from infections and so on. So that's that's what it does to them. And and some of these um, transgenic companies or biotech companies determined a way to get the plants to express the insecticidal proteins that come from this this bacteria. And so that's basically what we have now. We have these plants that when the insect feeds on them, we don't have to apply insecticide. They they express the insecticide intrinsically. And and it's very specific to the certain pests that you're targeting oftentimes as well. So um, a lot of the Bt proteins that we talk about in corn are just specific to some of these caterpillar pests. They don't affect um, non-targets or beneficial insects in the system. That's very good to hear because we we definitely don't want to be disrupting any uh, beneficial insects that are actually helping us in our corn fields. Um, now, you mentioned Bt proteins, and I just want to expand. Like, How many proteins are we talking about and are specific varieties doing expressing different proteins? Yes, so this kind of goes back to the history or the evolution of, of the BT corn uh, products. Originally, the, the, the first protein that was brought to market was called Cry1AB. Now, this, these names are kind of confusing. They are, they, most of them all start with Cry, which is kind of the short form for crystal. They're like crystal-shaped proteins. That's where that comes from. And then there are numbers and letters after that Cry name that that basically described the the morphology of the protein. So anyway, Cry1AB was the first protein that was developed um, and brought to market and uh, commercialized. uh, Probably what everyone will recall is the yield guard corn borer trait that Monsanto uh, originally commercialized. Um, As time went along, um, uh, Dow AgriSciences came out with a a second protein that was Cry1F. Um, and then later on, we have Monsanto coming out with two more that are what we call, uh, well, they're kind of pyramided. They're usually put together in the same plant, Cry1A.105 and Cry2AB2. So those are the main four BT proteins that we have that target lepidopteran pests or caterpillars. There's one more that's, that's uh, really the most recent to the scene, and that's VIP3A, which Syngenta developed, um, often uh, called Viptera hybrids or Tricepta now with other companies. Um, and so it's, it's slightly different. It's still uh, originated from the BT bacteria and so on, but it's a vegetative insecticidal protein, just a different stage of the bacterial uh, life cycle. Um, Anyway, the first four that I mentioned, all of those cryproteins 
are highly effective against European corn borer and um, they're very susceptible to them. But the VIP protein that I mentioned at the end is actually not the not effective on corn borer. So originally um, these proteins were put into plants individually. So a corn hybrid, hybrid would just express one of these proteins. Um, and at the time that this all began, there were resistance management recommendations that were put in place by the regulatory bodies um, and the developers so that we would hopefully be able to, you know, have these products available for a very long time. Uh, we wouldn't have the insects developing resistance to them. And so we, you may recall the, the whole refuge idea around BT corn. And so the whole point behind that was that you, you left a portion of the field um, that did not express the BT protein and that you would have a, a proportion of the pest population living on that crop, not having any exposure to the BT. And if by chance some rare resistant individuals happen to survive on the BT portion of the field, they would mate with the more um, available survivors from the non-BT field, the susceptible ones, and would keep resistance genes really low in the population. So that was, that was kind of one of our that and the fact that the these are high dose proteins against European corn borer, meaning they they kill more than 99.9% .9 of the population because they're so susceptible to them. Those were our insecticide or our resistance management strategies originally. But as time went along and more of these proteins were developed and brought to market, the uh, the developers worked together and started to pyramid these these. BT proteins in the same plant. So you would have more than one protein targeting the same pest in the same plant, which again, decreases the chances of resistance happening over time. So that's kind of the evolution of the proteins. And, and nowadays, you know, we know that like 88% of the corn in Canada is, is BT corn that we plant. And probably the majority of them are pyramid, express pyramids of these proteins. That's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing just kind of like, I, yeah, the evolution or the genealogy of BT corn something uh, from the 90s. And you kind of talked about like how effective it is. And just before we get on to uh, what you and your uh, research team found, but, um, and you mentioned previously that uh, European corn borer caused around like $1 billion worth of damage. Do we know how effective BT corn has really been over the last, I guess, 25 years at protecting corn yields? Yeah. So um, we don't really have good numbers maybe on this for Canada specifically, but in the States, there, there have been a number of studies published that have done some economic analysis of the impact of BT corn. And there's one that was published in um, in I believe it was science a few years ago by Bill Hutchison and his group um, that showed that, you know, since BT corn was introduced in the Midwest, like what he was looking at data from Illinois, Minnesota and Wisconsin, um, there's been more than 2.4 billion, no, sorry, $3.2 billion um, that we've saved, you know, in, in pest management costs uh, just using BT corn. And not only for BT corn growers, but there's there's kind of a, a halo effect. We've knocked these corn borer populations down. They've been suppressed so much across North America using BT corn that it's also been very beneficial to um, organic producers. 
who don't use the technology um, or, or vegetable producers as well. And I should back up because um, that's because European corn borer, although th their name is corn borer, um, this, this insect will actually feed on about 200 different plants. And vegetable, there are a lot of vegetables that deal with uh, corn borer problems, like uh, peppers is a big one. Um, they like apples, they like wheat, they like all kinds of different things. So, so there are benefits to, to all kinds of uh, agricultural sectors with BT corn. Yeah, not only that huge uh, you know, dollar value that you mentioned, but also just the, the added bonus of, you know, lowering the populations that can also go into, I guess, 200 other potential other host plants. You mentioned a little bit earlier about, uh, potential for resistance and how, uh, in the early stages, refuges were kind of set up, but I wanted to talk about a specific population or maybe an instance of resistance that you and your research group found, uh, in Nova Scotia. So could you kind of go uh, or take us along that journey and kind of talk about what happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, um, I guess one of the, the, the requirements that came along with registration of BT corn in North America is that we do monitor the, the populations for resistance developing. And so that's been done in the U.S. and Canada for decades. And up until 2018, there were no cases where we collected a population from the field or, or were you know, notified of a population in the field where it looked like they, the technology wasn't effective against them. Um, there have been the odd instance, there's been the odd instance over the years where um, a population was collected from the field, brought into the lab, and we do these, um, these dose response bioassays to measure the resistance. So we expose the populations to increasing concentrations of these BT proteins and basically you know, determine what is the LD50, the concentration of, of the protein that would kill 50% of the population. And that's, that's um, what we look at over time to see if there are any shifts in, in their susceptibility. Um, and so you know, there's been the odd time where a collection was made from the field, brought into the lab, and they looked a little less susceptible to the protein than, than we thought they should be. But, you know, the, the researchers who found that in the U.S. would go back to the sites, sample more, and, and never been able to replicate those results. So we know that resistance genes always exist in these populations to some degree. It's that, you know, usually it's a really low level and with European corn borer, it's been really low. However, in 2018, um, we were notified by some colleagues in Nova Scotia of a, of a few fields of um, BT corn where there was actually a lot of European corn borer present and a lot of damage. And so I actually went out there and saw it for myself and we, uh, in collaboration with the seed company at the time, we tested the plants to make sure they were expressing the protein that we thought they were. And um, we found that they were, and that there was anywhere from 30 to 70% of the plants in these fields that had corn borers in them. So this was highly, highly uh, surprising because it's never really been seen before in the field to that extent. And so we, we collected a number of populations from that region in Nova Scotia and also from another non-BT field kind of um, upwind of the region where the corn borers would not be moving in that direction in all likelihood. 
um, brought them back to Ridgetown and we've been rearing them and testing them ever since and um, found that they were very resistant to the, the one protein in question. And the protein that this happened with was CRY1F at the time. What were our returns on that field last year? Would canola be good? What about barley on the North Quarter? When do we seed this section? Well, if we switched to lentils, what would our profit margin be? Is Jamie working on the South Farm today? What product did Kelly spray last week? What price did we lock in at? How much wheat is left to sell? Is our cost of production better than last year? Your farm has lots going on. Keep it simple with Ag Expert Field Management Software. Try Ag Expert Field today. It's the easy way to manage your farm. Visit agexpert.ca. For that specific corn growing region, Nova Scotia, I'm sure that was quite the surprise uh, for them because they obviously were taking the right steps at using uh, a resistant variety. You mentioned it's Cry1F, but with these three other different proteins, were there any kind of chance for resistance or potentially a cross resistance uh, within those populations? Yeah, so the potential exists for sure. Um, you know, these cry proteins do have differences and they have some similarities. And and so, yeah, we are still evaluating that to what extent it, ex it exists, but um, we have seen some early indications that these populations that have really strong resistance to cry1f may have some elevated tolerance to a couple of the other cry proteins that are the most similar to it. Yeah. Hmm. So one thing that I got to learn about uh, while reading up for this is how, there are different races of Euro European corn borer. Uh, could you mention or talk about what uh, what people mean by different races for European corn borer and how that might relate back to uh, resistance with BT? Mm -hmm. So yeah, to complicate things a little further with your, within European corn borer, that species, there are two pheromone races and, you know, pheromones are the chemicals that they use to communicate within a species and, and within the, uh, the sex pheromone of European corn borer, there's kind of two variations of the pheromone. And we call one the Z race or the Iowa strain, some people call it. And it's the one that is probably primarily using corn as its host. So, you know, in, in most of the Midwest, that's the primary strain of corn borer. In Southwestern Ontario, that's our primary uh, race and so on. Um, but there's another race that it, we call the E race or the New York strain. Um, and it was, you know, historically more found on the East Coast in the U.S. And in the past, we found a little bit of it in Quebec in, in Canada. Um, but we really hadn't done a great um, assessment of what pheromone strains or races we have in different regions of Canada in a long time. And so that's something we're working on with this project. And the reason we care about that is because this E uh, race is the one that tends to use all these other crops other than corn as its primary host. And if the Cry1F resistance is more connected, is if it's present in both races of corn borer, then our chances of mitigating the resistant populations might be lower because they're not just going to be in corn. There may be, they may be developing on other crops throughout the year and you know, surviving and spreading those resistance genes. But hopefully, if they're primary, if this resistance uh, trait is related to the Z race, which is mostly on corn, then we have a better chance of being able to manage it. Speaking of management and 
uh, just kind of limiting the potential for resistance to grow within these uh, populations in Canada. Um, could you kind of go through uh, some best management practices that corn growers can utilize themselves uh, as to hopefully decrease that potential for resistance? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So when we think about resistance management, um, you know, the, the bottom line is you always have to keep the insects guessing. If you put the same management to, to them all the time, chances are they're going to figure it out and, and develop resistance. It's just the way it works with insects because they're so numerous. They reproduce like crazy. They're, they're you know, overturning genes way faster than you think. So anyway, probably the number one thing would be, you know, if, if we may be able to reduce the use of BT corn in some regions when corn borer populations are very low and you remove that selection pressure from the system. If corn borer is still around and it always seems to be around to some degree in background levels, low levels nowadays, um, you know, we definitely recommend that we don't grow these single toxin uh, BT hybrids any longer. And I think, um, what, with the discovery of the resistance on the East Coast, we found that there was still a fair bit of single toxin hybrids being grown in that region. So that could have something to do with why this happened. Um, whereas in the most of North America now, we're growing pyramided products. And that's definitely uh, a much more uh, durable way to, to approach this. So that would be the number one recommendation growing pyramided hybrids and then you know making sure we do follow the the refuge recommendations for the product whatever it is and oftentimes now it could be a refuge in the bag so it's already basically done for you which is nice um but with some some bt hybrids that are out there you still have to plant a, a separate refuge um yeah so that would be the number one thing is using these pyramided hybrids uh above and beyond any singles now, if uh, during the growing season, uh, a farmer goes out and scouts their field and they find evidence of a population that might be persisting through their BT corn, like what can that uh, singular person do within their own field uh, at that time? Should they call someone or should they just take immediate action? Right. Yeah, I would say the first thing to do would be to call someone, call your seed corn provider or your extension entomologist in your area or an agronomist or um, so all of the people involved with this project are also involved with a group called the Canadian Corn Pest Coalition. And our mandate is all around resistance to transgenic or BT corn. So contact the CCPC is the acronym is as well. The website is cornpest.ca. But anyway, yeah, you want to get someone in the field to have a look and verify what's really happening and also do those gene checks to make sure the plants are expressing the proteins that we, you hope they are. Um, you know, sometimes things happen, planting errors happen, and you might just have a mix up. But um, if we verify that the protein is there and the pests are there, then we would probably work to make a collection of the insects and, and do some further testing to, to see what's really going on. Um, and the problem with the testing is it does take a little bit of time because you have to bring the insects to the lab and rear them through a generation usually to have enough to run, run some tests. Um, so it takes a little bit of time and, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to a grower 
thinking about really vigorously chopping the corn stalks at the end of that season to get rid of these potentially resistant individuals. Um, European corn borer, they, over, they basically burrow their way down to the very bottom of the corn stalk, like within the bottom 30 centimeters or so to overwinter as a late instar. So they're down there in, in the bottom of those corn stalks all winter. And so if we destroy those, you're probably going to kill a lot of the population off. So don't immediately bring out the flamethrower to destroy the infected, but we just wait until the end of the season is, yeah. is the story here. That's right. And, and usually, you know, with corn borers, it's insecticide isn't a good option either because they're in the plant and applying anything is not going to reach them and be effective at all. So, yeah. Yeah. Also a very good point. You know, don't also just go reach out for whatever product that you might have because it probably won't affect them at all. Right. So um, I have a couple more questions. And one that I found really interesting is that you're starting, uh, or maybe this has already begun and you can maybe give some updates, is this new monitoring project initiative that you're kind of working with uh, different collaborators. So could you talk about that for a little bit? Mm -hmm. So it is kind of interesting that um, Canada has started this Canadian Plant Health Council and they wanted to identify a number of pests that we should be maybe monitoring on a on a nationwide level. And they're, they're form, they form these communities of practice around, there's a, one insect, one disease, and one weed. And European corn borer was the insect that made the list for this community of practice. And, and so it's basically a coordinated effort across the country to standardized how we monitor or at least shared data across the country for for European corn borer because it does impact so many different crops. Um, Although corn was historically a big one with BT corn that that kind of changed but with this you know discovery of resistance on the east coast it's definitely sparked some interest in looking at corn borers again in corn but not only that, you know, all these other crops that I mentioned, and then some new crops in Canada that like hemp and hops that are hosts for corn borer as well. We want to have a look at that. And I think um, coming together with this group, entomologists across the country, um, both provincial and, and academic, we're able to all benefit from talking to each other and just kind of getting the lay of, you know, the status of this pest across the country. And it'll help us all learn a little bit more and give us better information onto the crops we're working to try to manage it in. So yes, there is an, uh, an app, a survey one, two, three app that um, you can download the European corn borer monitoring um, protocol inside it. And, and basically enter data on any crop that you might find them in. And so we're encouraging people to, to keep an eye out for corn borers, no matter what crop it is. And, and, and also we're hoping to, you know, if we're alerted to where they are, we might be able to receive some of those insects in our lab that we can use to, to contribute to this pheromone race testing and resistance monitoring work. That sounds like a fantastic tool and a resource that is pretty simple nowadays. You know, just download an app and if you find it, put it in. That that sounds great. Now, just before we go, uh, what other projects uh, are down the line for you and your research team as they relate to uh, European corn borer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, this Nova Scotia discovery has um, sparked a big research project with a, no- with a, a big number of collaborators across the country. 
Um, it's, it's an NSERC project. We have funding from NSERC. We have the, the seed corn companies involved. We have the grower organizations involved from the Maritimes to Manitoba. Um, we've got um, the, the provincial entomologists from all of the provinces as well. And we're, we're basically, you know, trying to figure out more about corn borers again. Um, you know, it was strange that, that um, this resistance was found in Nova Scotia, which is a relatively small corn growing region, you know, but um, now we know that there are similarities to that and maybe Manitoba for like, it's a shorter growing season. You may get, you may have had similar hybrids offered in those regions that could lead to the same issue in the past. And so that's why, um, we're kind of, in, everyone is kind of interested coast to coast and we don't want this resistance to spread. And so we've, um, we're doing a number of things, like I said, learning more about the biology, the timing, how many generations, what are the pheromone races of corn borers in all the different regions of Canada where they are, and then monitoring or testing them to see if the resistance is present anywhere else. Um, what is the susceptibility to CRY1F and those other proteins that I mentioned earlier from all of these different regions? And what's the potential for the gene flow of the resistance possibly uh, in the future? So um, all of those things we've got, we're looking at the, not just the biology, but kind of the molecular, the genetic basis of the resistance and um, investigating the resistant populations from the East Coast and trying to see if there are any fitness costs associated with the resistance. Like, are they, are they less um, productive in the environment or are, they, or are they more so, which we hope not, but uh, things like that. Um, and then I think in the end, we hope to see if we can develop a molecular marker for the CRY1F resistance that could maybe improve the efficiency of our resistance monitoring uh, in the future. Wow, that sounds all very interesting and fascinating. And hopefully in the future, we can talk again uh, to get an update on all those great research projects that you just mentioned. Um, so Jocelyn, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, where can people find you or, you know, in case they find a resistant population in their field, where can they contact you? Yeah. So yeah, if you go to the University of Guelph Ridgetown campus website, I have a profile there. All my information is there about my research program and contacting me um, as well. The Canadian Corn Pest Coalition website that I mentioned, www.cornpest.ca. Um, my information is there as well as all the other people involved with this work. Um, yeah. And my email is pretty easy. It's jocelyn.smith at uoguelph.ca. Great. Well, thank you again so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.